turning in my Bible to Psalm 5, I invite you uh, to go there with me. We're going to hear from God's word together. To the choir, to the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you're not a God who delights in wickedness, evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes, you hate all evildoers, you destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Today we're turning to Psalm 5 together. Um, you know, uh, just as it was Father's Day a few weeks ago when we were in Psalm 2, which is somewhat heavy, this is even heavier. It's July 4th, you know. Give us a sermon about hot dogs, Pastor, you know, something light. But here we are in Psalm 5. Uh, we're giving uh, a tour. We're taking a tour of the Psalms as we look to the playlist of God's people, the, the hymnal of Israel. And we are uh, learning together to, to sing the songs that they sang and to look to God and hope and pray as uh, they prayed. But uh, we went through Psalm 1, 2, 3. Psalm 3 was a psalm of lament. Psalm 4 is also a psalm of lament, so I thought I would give us something that'd be a little bit different. And uh, so we went to Psalm 5, also a psalm of lament, but a very specific kind of psalm of lament. It's an imprecatory psalm. What does that mean? It means it's a psalm that calls down God's curse and judgment on God's enemies. Is that okay? How should we pray for our enemies? Uh, before I get going and get uh, in the depths of this, I want to give uh, a quick caveat. Uh, if you have uh, had traumatic experiences and hearing about some of the deep, dark things of this world, uh, which are addressed in the Bible and in the Psalms, if that might uh, just cause you serious distress or anxiety, you have no judgment if you got up and left right now. Um, just no judgment at all. Uh, if, if, if children are present, the, the Psalms take us to some very dark places. They're not rated G. And uh, so we're going to go there, and as disciples, we're going to look to uh, our Lord Jesus, even from these Psalms. So, with that said, uh, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive in. Is there, is there a ring? It sounds like we took care of the ring. Is that better? Thank you, Justin. Justin is awesome, so we should give thanks for him. Father, thank you, Lord. I'm thankful for Justin today. I'm thankful for all of our, our servants today, but I'm also pr thankful for your word, and I just pray that you'd, you'd guide us. 
by your spirit and your wisdom and your grace so that we could uh, know how to sing this song for your glory. Uh, Meet us, Lord, and uh, address our doubts, address our questions and our hurts. Challenge us where we need challenge. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So how should we pray for our enemies? That's what we're thinking about. We ended last week looking at the end of Psalm 3 where David says, your blessing be on your people. And he was like his great, 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 great grandson, the greater David, the king, Jesus, who from the cross says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. David was offering a blessing over his people, even those who were rebelling against him. But now we come to Psalm 5, in which surrounded by enemies... David is leading God's people to pray for God to bring judgment. How do we relate to that? I think of, of, of just having enemies. Uh, thankfully, I, I've only had that moment come in my life uh, very scarcely where I've had people relate to me as an enemy. What has that been like for you? Someone has made themselves your enemy. They've set themselves against you. you know, uh, and how do we pray for them? So I think of a, a high school track athlete you know, and she's preparing for the 200-meter race in an upcoming meet. And so she prays for her crosstown rival that she would develop bunions. You know, is that okay? Probably not, right? But, but, but maybe a little bit more seriously, a, a, a mother and a wife sees her husband develop an addiction to alcohol, and he starts to become controlled by his rages, and he starts to abuse her and her children, so she starts to pray that he would go to prison so that he would wake up. Anything, Lord, whatever it'll take so that my kids might grow up in peace. And then you might think of a a Ukrainian mother right now who gets news of her son who has just been killed in eastern Ukraine. And in the grief, she starts to pray to God, God, take one of Putin's children so that he might know the terrors that he's wreaking against the people of Ukraine and so that he might stop this war. Is that okay to pray that way? We're asking this question, how should we pray for our enemies? Life, sadly, so often, we will encounter this reality of being surrounded by enemies. Thankfully, in the West, for the most part, we, we, we get to live free of this in this generation. But at some point in your life, sadly, you'll probably be able to relate to some extent with what the psalmists say in these kinds of psalms, being surrounded, having people set against you. And some of us may even experience what it is to have mortal enemies. That's what we're hearing here in the psalm. These aren't folks who are workplace rivals. You know, they're not track rivals. These are people who want to kill God's people. And they will. And so in these imprecatory psalms, we're calling down curses upon God's enemies. Is that okay? Well, as as we walk into this psalm, I want us to, to just recognize that for people who would face this kind of opposition, they would often falter. Maybe you've been here. You've wondered, does God even hear me in the midst of my distress and the anguish that I'm facing? as these people are are harming me, harming my loved ones, harming your people, Lord. They're groaning, wondering if God hears, and we're encouraged the Lord does hear, but you're, you're encouraged to raise up that prayer together in this psalm. And so it begins, 
Psalm 5, verse 1, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. And here we find an important point at which to stop and pause before we dare continue in this psalm or any imprecatory psalm. I prepare a sacrifice before you and watch. Why would an Israelite prepare a sacrifice? Why was David preparing a sacrifice? It's because he knew that he needed the forgiveness of God, that he himself had related to God as an enemy. He didn't want the rule of God in his life. And so he offered this sacrifice in place of him, this animal, whatever it was, in his place. And those were pictures we know on this side of the cross now that Jesus was the final sacrifice for our sins, that he gave his own life and blood so that we could be forgiven, so we could be saved from judgment as God's enemies. It's grace. This is celebrated even in this psalm. What, what do we see? How can David enter into relationship with God? How can he enter into God's presence? Verse seven, I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. It's only through the love of God that never quits that David has any chance, let alone to be able to speak to this God, to pray to him as a son and a friend. And there's an irony because this psalm will be quoted in the New Testament by Paul, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans in chapter 3, verse 13. Verse 9, as you heard it earlier, their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. David has enemies slandering him. But in Romans 3, when Paul quotes this, he's not just talking about those people out there, those enemies. He's talking about everyone apart from the grace of God. Every single one of us apart from saving relationship with Jesus Christ. No one seeks God. No, not one. And they're fallen throughout their entire body as you read Romans 3. There's this anatomy of sin that Paul lays out the whole body corrupted, all of us corrupted by sin. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. It's only by grace that we can enter into relationship with God, and that grace is available through Jesus. That's where we begin. We dare not take another step unless we realize that. Otherwise, we'll become self-righteous and crazy and misuse these psalms. So, in grace, we walk forward. And in that grace, we, we think about what God's people were called to. One of the first questions before we address the psalm is we need to think about vengeance because that's essentially what we're doing. We're calling down vengeance upon enemies. God's vengeance. But were God's people allowed to take vengeance themselves? This is one of those places, as a pastor, I want you to be disabused of things you may hear, that the Old Testament is so different from the New, that the Old Testament God is different than the New Testament God. No, as a matter of fact, as you read in the Old Testament, the ethics are the same for God's people. Vengeance is not available to any of God's people. That's what it says in their Torah, Leviticus 19.18, where the Lord quotes when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. It says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. And it's not just for your fellow Israelites, if you're among the people of God. It's extended even to enemies, 
Proverbs 25, verses 21 to 22. If your enemy's hungry, give him bread to eat. If, if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. You'll heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. Paul quotes from that in Romans 12 in mentoring us how we relate to enemies today in Christ. No, vengeance is not available to us. Give your enemy bread and water. Act kindly. Don't take vengeance or bear a grudge. Remember, the New Testament isn't entirely new, guys. It's carrying the same story forward of the same God. But, but if you're thinking about this, if you've ever been in a situation where you have real enemies and you are committed to this ethic that the Lord has given us, that we will not take vengeance, we won't take it to our own hands, what gives you patience to endure? Assuming these people will never change. It's that the Lord will judge his adversaries. That's what Deuteronomy 32 says in verse 41. I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. And just before that, in verse 35, in Deuteronomy 32, vengeance is mine, the Lord says, and recompense. Paul quotes from that in Romans 12 as well, uh, from the Greek version, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So, so this is foundational to approaching this psalm, is understanding that God is the final judge. But this psalm is approaching the final judge and asking for judgment now, asking for an inbreaking of his justice now. We know this is where the story ends for those who don't take refuge in Christ. But we're asking that the Lord would deliver us now. Sometimes in the Psalms, in the imprecatory Psalms, uh, they're surrounded by slander, like David is in Psalm 5. Sometimes it's slaughter. In any case, this is a biblical lament. And since it's a psalm, imagine this. This is what's in your hymnal on a Sunday. This is what's on the screens as you sing a worship song. 5 verse 10, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they've rebelled against you. Is that okay? This psalm says yes. It's good to long for righteousness and justice to come into our situations and into this world. But we're looking to Jesus because everything in us is going to scream to get even when we're surrounded by enemies. But what did Jesus say? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's the words of our Lord and Savior. So how then should we pray for our enemies? As we consider not just Psalm 5, but the rest of the imprecatory Psalms, we won't look at all of them but also the wide sweep of scripture. Here's the simple answer. We pray as our Savior taught us to pray. We pray as our Savior taught us to pray. Well, what does that mean? Well, first of all, we look to Jesus because he is our authority. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me, Jesus says. He is the king. And he says he's with us always as we're baptizing and being baptized into his name, name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as we're learning and teaching all that he's commanded. But as we learn what he's commanded about prayer, what did, what did he say about prayer? He said, pray then like this. Remember in Matthew 6? You, can, you could read these words with me. They'll be on the screen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's where the text of Matthew stops. Later, church leaders and worshipers added the final line of the prayers we know that for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. But is this, is this prayer in, in keeping with Psalm 5? When we, can we pray Psalm 5 and yet still pray as our Savior taught us to pray? I'm telling you today, the answer is yes. But we have to be careful. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 11. Uh, Peter's writing to a people who are facing the real possibilities of persecution, increasingly socially ostracized, and the government is taking notice of them. Within a couple generations, we, we have letters uh, from Pliny the Younger, a governor of, of that region, writing to Trajan, the, the emperor of the Romans, about how to deal with Christians and how he's, he's presently killing them and his, his current policy toward them and so forth. So we know persecution is a very real possibility for them, but they are promised a salvation that's being guarded for them, that's ready to be revealed at the last day when Christ returns. And Peter writes in verses 10 through 11 of chapter 1, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Listen up, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The spirit of Christ was inspiring the prophets of old, including those who Peter quotes in 1 Peter, which includes David in the Psalms. Christ inspired all of these scriptures for us. He is speaking. His authority is there. And so when we pray Psalm 5, we're praying as our Savior taught us to pray, even as his spirit inspired us to pray. But, but many of you might stop me there. You may disagree with me, which is okay. You're allowed to disagree with me. We go to the scriptures and it's our authority. You can wrestle with me. Uh, but, but some of our neighbors may say something like, okay, honestly, I've read the Psalms, Pastor. Are you seriously telling me that we should pray words like Psalm 58.10? The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Ew. You know? What about Psalm 109? Starting in verse 6. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he's tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. It goes on for six more verses. And some of you guys are like, just make it stop. Take the mic away, you know? But what I want to do today, in part, as your pastor, is to inoculate you. Because you are going to have friends, neighbors, who are going to take passages like these. They'll take them out of their context, and they'll share them in a social media meme. And they'll shove it in your face and they're going to say, here, this is what it says. I told you all along that your God is a monster, that he's a bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, that the God of the Old Testament isn't anything like your Christ. You're going to hear those kinds of things. And so what I want to do today is just to help you encounter these and learn how to account for them and how to look to Jesus in them. And so we take one more step. Psalm 137, probably the most difficult verse in the Psalms. It was inspired during the time of the Babylonian captivity when God's people had been taken from their home. 
in Judea and Jerusalem. Their temple was destroyed. Their enemies, the Babylonians, had enslaved many of them. They were taunting them, forcing them to sing songs for them, to entertain them. And in the midst of that, this psalm was inspired. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Oof. Is that okay? Is this praying as our Savior taught us to pray? Hang in there with me. Before we dare appropriate any of these imprecatory psalms, I hope that even as we take careful consideration of the fact that we ourselves were enemies, that we will consider, consider at least three questions. First of all, when we sing these psalms, who are we? And who are our enemies? I have to start there. Who are we who are our enemies? Secondly, what are these curses? Thirdly, does the new revelation in the New Testament change the way we use these psalms? And fourthly, then, we'll talk about how to apply them. How do we use the psalms? So first, when we sing these psalms, who are we and who are our enemies? Look at the beginning of chapter 5 again. This is a psalm to the choir master for the flutes. How nice. A psalm of David. It's a psalm of David. And who is David? He is the king. And he's not just any old king. He is God's king. That's what Psalm 2.6 says. It says, as for me, this is the Lord speaking in the psalm. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This applies to David and to his heirs. In 2 Samuel 7.14, we see God make these promises to David through the prophet Nathan that he will establish his kingdom and his throne. And his son would be sitting on that kingdom and it would be, bring peace without end. This was the hope of God's people. From the beginning, God intended to bless the world. And he had called out Abram, someone who wasn't even interested in God per se, but God called him in his grace to himself. And he said that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed through the children of this man, Abram. Well, that story continued throughout uh, the history of, of, of God's people in the Old Testament. God met them and redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. He gave them a law, a purpose, an identity. You're a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You're my treasured possession in all the earth, the Lord says to them. But then he gives them a king. And now, at that stage and forward, it was through the kingdom that the Lord would bring blessing to the ends of the earth. We see that in, in Isaiah 9, the hope and the vision of hope and promise. In Isaiah 9, 6, of, of this kingdom and of peace, there will be no end in the kingdom of Messiah. But even in Isaiah's day, he knew the kingdom had been divided. And by the time of Jesus, that kingdom was in shambles. They were under a puppet ruler, under Roman rule, under the enemies of God. And yet God had not quit on his promises to David, his promises for a kingdom. And this is what the whole New Testament is about. And so I want to help you have new ears for a moment as, as you just hear like what Paul wrote in Romans 1. When he begins his letter, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus. Remember, the anointed one was first given as a title to David. 
servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the good news of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. Who is the son if you have Jewish ears in the first century? Well, you were looking to the hope of the son of God, the king. 2 Samuel 7.14 speaks of David as, as God's son. Psalm 2, I will tell you of the decree. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's talking about David in the immediate sense. And Jesus comes as the royal heir, descended from David according to the flesh. But the wonder of the New Testament that we find in Jesus is that he's not just any old descendant of David, that he himself is the very son of God, true God of true God, very light of very light, begotten, not made, the second person of the Trinity. He is the son of God as declared in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Now the blessing of Abraham is coming to all nations through Jesus Christ and through the kingdom that was promised. And this includes you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ today in Lamar County. This is the story we're a part of. Why does this matter? When you come to Psalm 5, when you come to any of the Psalms, who are we? We are God's people. We're a part of his kingdom. And at times, even in the Psalms, we're given a first-person eye of the king. This is written by David, the king, inspired by the spirit of Christ, the even greater David, the greater Messiah. And so we sing with his words as those who've been transferred from the domain of darkness into his kingdom, the kingdom of God's beloved son, Colossians 1.13. We're, we're praying as God's people against God's enemies. That's who we are. We are God's people. We're praying against God's enemies. Psalm 5.10 says, they have rebelled against you, against the Lord. We're not talking about personal vendettas. We're not talking about someone who just disagrees with us politically. We're not talking about someone, uh, you know, who, who just annoys us, you know? We're not talking about a track rival across town. We're talking about the enemies of God. Now, some of us have been trained to say, trained to say something like, my only enemies are sin and death and Satan. And when I hear that, I'm encouraged because I think that person is probably taking the scripture seriously. For example, in Ephesians 6, verse 2, where we hear uh, that our, our greatest enemies are spiritual. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 6, 2. We, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present, present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And just pausing there for a second, I'm talking about so much stuff today from, from vengeance, from the Old Testament and its relationship to the new uh, imprecatory Psalms, and now Satan and fallen angels. And so that's a lot and if you struggle with any of that, we can talk and get coffee and we can untangle these things slowly. But today I'm going to keep marching forward. The Bible speaks of an enemy from the beginning. The Lord had, had created these angels good and yet they fell with Satan. And we wrestle against them today. That's scriptural truth. That's, that's bedrock for us. And yet we also know that human beings can align themselves with Satan. And in fact, we did. That's what, that's what Paul says earlier in Ephesians 2. He says, y'all were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the 
course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work among the sons of disobedience. You know, we, we were following the desires of our bodies and of our minds, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's, that's what we were. Y'all, me, apart from Christ, enemies, allied with the devil. It's the way the Bible talks. And so, the fact that the Lord is gracious to us is an incredible wonder. That's still the very next verse in Ephesians says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You've been saved. We were still in trespasses and sin. We didn't get ourselves cleaned up. He made us alive. We were still enemies. He stopped us and turned us around. And that grace toward enemies who will repent is something even the Psalms presume. That's what I'm arguing today. Psalm 83, 16 is an important one to mark down, to remember. This is an imprecatory psalm by Asaph. And he writes, fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Cause them to feel your displeasure. Fill their faces with shame. Why? So that they might seek your name, your name being representative of the Lord. So that they might seek the Lord. They might turn and repent. He's praying that when they feel the judgment, the displeasure of God, that they would actually turn and seek refuge in him, that they'd come to their senses and repent. And so repentance is always our first prayer, just as it always had been in the Psalms. What what I'm saying is, when we pray these Psalms, they are conditional. We are always praying, if we pray these effectively, Lord, bring them to repentance But if they won't, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. Deliver us from evil, we pray as our Savior taught us to pray. And we know the end of those who don't take refuge in Messiah from the rest of the scriptures, even from Psalm 2 just a few weeks ago. They will bow their knee in defeat when Messiah comes. So who are we when we come to the imprecatory Psalms? We are God's people. The enemies are God's enemies. Secondly, what are the curses? The curses are prayers for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done now. He will be the judge in the end. We know that. We're asking right now, Lord, break through. And these curses are given in the Psalms in poetic, vivid imagery. At times, they they use things like hyperbole. And so we read them mindfully that they are songs using poetic vehicles to communicate with us. Nevertheless, these are expressions of the moral outrage of God's people against real sin and real darkness that they experienced against themselves. They they bring out that that striking condition that, that if you repent, if you turn to the Messiah, it is joy and life. That's what Psalm 5 says at the end there. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover them with favor as with a shield. We, we, we looked at this last week. You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. There's peace everlasting for those who look to God, but those who turn against him will experience something very different. Because 
what it says in Psalm 5. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Verse 4, evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And such were we. But we're no longer identified by what we do, but by Christ and what he's done. That is our only hope. So these psalms are curses asking the Lord to bring his kingdom now. Thirdly, does the new revelation in the New Testament, does it change the way we use these psalms? Basically, no. If anything, the New Testament brings us into focus on a Psalm 8316 way of praying them, focusing on longing for repentance. Because the New Testament focuses on the forgiveness that Christ has purchased for us. And if we've received that forgiveness, enemies of God, how many times are we to forgive? Well, 70 times seven. And once we've forgiven 490 times, then we stop, right? No, that's not the point. <laughs> no, we learn the Lord's heart who longs that all people should be saved. And his character is worked into us as we sing these psalms, as we pray as our Savior taught us to pray. We, we, we see that uh, these very psalms are used in the New Testament and the same ethic exists in the New Testament. Romans 12, 19 through 21, you can read it later. Paul basically quotes from the passages I read earlier, Leviticus 19, 18, Deuteronomy 32, 35, and Proverbs 25, 21, and 22. The ethics of the New Testament are the same. We don't take vengeance. Vengeance is the Lord's. And further, in the New Testament, these psalms are quoted, the imprecatory psalms. In Acts 120, uh, Psalm 69, 25, and, and Psalm 109, verse 8, which we read earlier, uh, let another take his office, is applied to Judas Iscariot, who sadly is on the bad end of an imprecatory prayer. In Romans 11, 9 through 10, uh, the people of God who had rejected the Messiah are on the bad end of Psalm 69, 22 through 23. And we find even new imprecations, new prayers for judgment on the pens of Christ's apostles and the lips of his saints. We find that from Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, and Galatians 1, 8, and 9 for opponents of the gospel. And we hear it on the mouths of God's people who are persecuted, even the martyrs who are now in heaven in Revelation 6, verses 9 and 10. And so we see that in the New Testament, there's nothing fundamentally new in the way we relate to these psalms, but we bear in mind, for the sake of our own souls and our witness in the world, we bear in mind, we're not talking about personal enemies, we're talking about God's enemies. We remember it's only by grace that we ourselves aren't enemies. We approach these humbly. We always first pray for repentance. We pay attention to all that our Savior's taught us in Old and New Testaments, and then we might be ready to apply them. So how do we pray these psalms today? First of all, an obvious thing that I, I pray we don't neglect the obvious things. When we pray these prayers, we pray them. We don't act on them. We don't take vengeance. God is the judge. And so just like Jesus, when he was reviled, he, even on the cross, he, he reviled not in return, but he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. 1 Peter 2, verse 23, we pray these and we trust in God to judge. Secondly, we're going to pray for repentance first, always. We are shaped by our Lord's forgiveness. 
We only pray these conditionally if they won't repent, Lord. Stop them. Deliver us from evil. Third, we appreciate the situations and context from which these psalms arise. And here we need to take a look at Psalm 137 for a moment. It's the most difficult verse in all the psalms. But if we don't read it in its context, we won't appreciate why it's there. We certainly won't see it as praying, praying as our Savior taught us to pray. We'll still probably wrestle with it after today. I still do myself. Nevertheless, it says, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. What you have done to us. And it goes on, blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. These are ugly words that come from faces contorted with tears and rage because the very thing they're singing about has been done to them. This, believe it or not, is not hyperbole. This is the reality of war, ancient and modern. The hateful, unspeakable evils that can be done. We see it in 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 12, Elisha, he encounters Hatzel, the king of the Syrians, who's going to invade Samaria, the northern kingdom of Israel. And he speaks of the horrors that he's going to do. He's going to kill pregnant women, women brutally. He's going to dash children upon the rocks. We find it, if you read the Iliad, in, in Priam's speech about his son Hector, who's about to face Achilles, and, and spoiler alert, 3,000 years late, Hector dies. And so Priam is lamenting what's about to happen to him and his family and his little ones, including them being dashed upon the rocks. In the Second World War, Derek Kidner includes a quotation from a story recorded from an interview with an SS officer who was convicted because he would take the Jewish children by their feet and break their heads by striking them against the wall. Lord have mercy. These things happen in this Genesis 3 fallen world where enemies of God and his people wreak havoc and pain and horrors that no one should ever have to experience. And what do they deserve? What would you say someone deserves? Not, not in the outrage in the moment of, of, of anger when you desire vengeance, but if you were able, if it was possible to be cool-headed about it, what would you say that person deserves if they did what the Babylonians did to God's people? Derek Kidner writes, the dispassionate answer would presumably be the degree of suffering they imposed on others. This is what the Bible speaks of as an eye for an eye. And many of us think of that as a horrific idea because losing an eye sounds awful, but it's actually a great legal principle, proportionate justice. The punishment should fit the crime. When we sing this psalm, if we dare sing it, we're praying for proportionate justice. As horrific as that may be when they come face to face with the judge. And we're praying even that it might happen sooner so that we may not have to live under them longer and see more children suffer the same fate. May none of us ever need to pray this way and pray Psalm 137. But there are Christians even today who face these kind of horrors. And that brings me to the fourth and final point. We appreciate the context from which these arise, but finally, 
we are never flippant in identifying God's enemies. These prayers are, are powerful. I've said this before. When we come to God in prayer, we're engaging in the most powerful force in the universe. We are calling on God Almighty. And we're not going to play around with the strongest weapon he's given us as his people, as we face uh, true darkness in his world. We're not just going to point it in any direction willy-nilly. We're, we're infantry. We're not the general. Joshua got this mixed up in, in Joshua chapter 5. He was about to invade uh, into the land that was promised to God's people. He's about to attack Jericho. And he sees someone come to him in Joshua 5.13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the Lord's armies. Now I've come. And Joshua fell on his face, and he worshiped him. We don't make the call of who God's enemies are. God does. Talking heads don't. Our feeling on a certain day doesn't. And so before we ever dare point these prayers at someone, we start with Jesus, the King of heaven. We look to him. We learn of him. All that he's taught us, all that he's lived, all that his scriptures teach us, his spirit inspiring all of them. We remember that we are the people of God only by grace. The enemies we pray against are God's enemies, and so we seek God's wisdom in community for who his enemies are before we would ever pray these prayers. We don't just run out with them. It's only in that kind of a community of wisdom we might have a chance to use these faithfully. So how do we pray for our enemies? <laughs> we pray as our Savior taught us to pray. So I invite you now to pray with me. Father, I uh, thank you for Jesus. Lord, thank you that he has given us uh, a place in his kingdom and a purpose. Lord, we don't deserve it. We're not entitled. <laughs> we were running the opposite direction. And in your grace, you saved us from running off a cliff into destruction. Thank you, Lord. Uh, Lord, today we pray for those who identify as, as your enemies, even vocally would say so. Lord, I pray that you would surprise them in their grace, that you would knock them down with blinding light and clarity and show them that Jesus is Lord and that that is good. I pray you'd bring repentance and revival in your world, Lord. But for all of your people who groan today under oppression, we do pray, truly, your kingdom come, your will be done, and we pray, deliver us from evil, Lord. We entrust these things to you who are wise and good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.